All right, good morning, Providence Road. Uh, my name is Matt Mosier. I am one of the lay elders here at the church, and uh, I don't actually do this preaching thing uh, very often, and that's why I think Jeremy and Jay gave me a passage just like 87 verses, <laughs> right? So just knock it out all at once. Uh, that's kind of what it feels like. But just as a heads up, we're going to be moving pretty quick today. Um, just, just buckle up. But um, I should get you to lunch in about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, something. Okay. That's a joke. That's a joke. I have kids. I know. We got to be fast. So um, first thing I wanted to just touch on and just say, hey, it's, it's Mother's Day, and we want to celebrate our moms. We're thankful, so, so thankful for all the moms that we have in the church. I've been fortunate enough to have awesome moms in my life, and so I'm just grateful for all the moms, the work that they do, the responsibility that they have, um, and so we're grateful for all of you. So um, if you haven't yet, make sure you call your mom today. Just uh, tell her how much you love her. And, um, and while we do like to celebrate and all those things, there is a flip side to that coin. This day may not be a day of celebration for everybody, right? It could be a day of sadness, just maybe a hard day. And that's just the reality of any days where we celebrate something like this with a family. It could be mom passed away recently, a relationship with mom's not great, or you desire to be a mom and it hasn't happened. Like any of those types of things, we want to acknowledge that as well. Um, and we want to pray for that. So if you're feeling that, you're feeling kind of just, this isn't your day for whatever reason, um, and you want to feel the arms of the church wrap around you, we'd be happy to pray uh, for you this morning. We'll be, we'll be um, up here afterwards. And so if that's you, just come in, and we'd, we'd love to pray for you. And so we're, we're so thankful, though, that you're here and you took the time this Sunday to, to, to be with us. So I will pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into this text and get going. So um, Jesus, we thank you for this day. We are very grateful um, for, your, for your word and that you don't leave us just questioning who you are and don't leave us questioning um, what you have done for us. So as we move through this teaching this morning, may your spirit just open our eyes, open our hearts to what you have to say, not me, not anything in this world, but you, that you will be the one who teaches us this morning. So we're thankful for that, and we ask that you just... Um, as we move through this text, God, that you will be the, that we see, what we look to and what we see and what we love. Um, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So first thing I'd like to just get into, let's go, let's go, let's get a little bit of background and then we'll start moving. As I, as I mentioned, I'm going to go through a lot of this text and I'm just going to move through so that we can kind of see what Jesus is teaching us here. It's not the easiest text. And so we want to stay real close to what Jesus is saying to make sure we know what he's, he's trying to teach us this morning. So we've been in John for a while, and so the background in the book of John is, um, if we look at verse 20, I mean chapter 20, verse 30 in John, we can see why John wrote this book. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that my believing you may have life in his name. So that's our background. That's what we're go working off here, that John has included these things so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and we may have life in his name. And one thing to, to note in John, throughout the book of John, and in this passage in particular, when Jesus is talking about life, he's talking about everlasting life. He's not talking about this health, wealth, make me feel good, make it, make it all right for me life. He's talking about everlasting life. And so um, that's just the background. So when we, we know that John included these things, that we can know who Jesus is and that we can believe, he, believe in him. Okay, so we move through that. So we've just gotten through, at least in our passages, we've gotten through the feeding of the 5,000 
and the, the walking on the water. So feeding of the 5,000, Jesus takes five loaves, five regular barley loaves and two fish, and feeds 5,000 men. It was probably more around 15,000 people. The, this is actually the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, and the thought is probably because so many people were there and so many people experienced it. Okay, but then this next one, when Jesus walks on water, he is. This is only something experienced by the disciples. Okay, but the idea that he's showing just massive authority and over the wind and the water and the waves, the ocean, as Jeremy has mentioned, is this dark, mysterious place and still is. And so Jesus is showing authority over that. And so even the disciples at this point are kind of like, "Wow, who is?" Jesus. And so we're actually going to answer that question um, this morning. So starting in the text, let's go through it. Um, we got a lot, a lot of work to do, so we're going to be moving pretty quick. So um, starting in verse 22, we see, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves get into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Okay, so the crowd wakes up. They wake up. They want breakfast. They're looking for Jesus. They know he can provide this. They don't know that he decided to flex his power in the middle of the night and walk across water. So they wake up. Disciples, they know they're not there. Jesus is not there. Everybody's a little bit confused. So then they take off. They go to Capernaum and try to find him. Okay. So verse 25 tells us, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So they don't seem to have any trouble finding Jesus, and that's probably because they went to the synagogue. As we see, the very last verse in this passage tells us where Jesus is, this teaching is. So they go to the synagogue, they find Jesus, and they say, when did you get here? Now this question, like we know that he walked on water, so it's almost, they don't ask how. Or why they just ask when, and actually the idea here is these people probably thought they had some special connection with Jesus. They had wanted to make him king, and they thought that if Jesus is going to do anything, he's going to let us know. But he didn't. So it's basically like you've uh, made an agreement with your friends to go to a party, and then they go to the party without you. So when you get to the party, you're like, "When did you guys get here? Like, what? Like, how long have you been here?" So this idea is these people were like, um, "Like, I thought we were special here." And Jesus, he just kind of leaves them there. But the idea, and they also, they also address him as rabbi. So in the feeding of the 5,000, the people wanted to make Jesus king, right? But now they address him as rabbi or teacher. And a king and a rabbi and a teacher are very different. So it's also clear that there's some identity issue. They don't know how to identify Jesus either, okay? And so we keep moving on. And in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't answer their question at all. He just jumps right into the teaching. So uh, verse 26 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The first thing to note is this truly, truly statement. This will happen several times in the passage. And so this is Jesus. He's, he's about to drop a truth bomb essentially. He's going to drop some knowledge, and he wants all of us, he wants them and us to pay attention to what he's going to say. So um, he says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. Okay, they're thinking with their stomach, right? That's why they're there. They're hungry. I'm a dad, so I know exactly what this is like, right? My, I've had a kid come up to me, cheese stick in hand, and say, I'm starving. And you're like, you're not, you're not starving. You have food. Or open the fridge, right? And it's like, um, we don't have any food, which is 
not true because there's food in the fridge. You don't want the food, but you have food. So, like, he's not, Jesus is not a fan of this materialistic thinking, not a fan of them thinking so earthly, and so he challenges it right off, right? Do not work for the food that perishes. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus immediately turns this conversation to the spiritual. He's essentially saying, hey, you're focused on the wrong things, right? And this is a very common teaching a common tactic that Jesus uses in his teaching. Just one other example, one other example. There's a lot of examples in Scripture, but one is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, In chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus tells us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, or moth and rust destroy, or thieves break up and seal. But lay for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's similar to his conversation with the woman at the well. It's similar to this conversation with Nicodemus. So right here, we just see this contrast with this physical need that the people want Jesus to meet. And he immediately turns and says, but you have a spiritual need that I am here to meet. So this is the first kind of truth bomb. This is the first knowledge that Jesus wants to to drop on us is that there's absolutely going to be physical needs that need to be met in this world. But he doesn't want us to focus on those things. He wants our focus to be eternal. So as Jesus tells us in 627, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So not only does he say, he's promising them, um, he's saying, hey, don't focus just on these earthly needs. He's actually promising that he can provide that. And this is a problem that we all have, is this idea of focusing on the gift and not the giver. And I think that's kind of the first point of this interaction and this interchange is Jesus is saying, hey, don't focus, don't choose the gift over the giver. He wants us to focus on himself. And we see this emphasized as we move forward. So in verse 28, they say to him, the crowd says to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? The crowd completely ignores the fact that he says that a person, he refers to the son of man, that will provide the food they need. He literally says, which the Son of Man will give you. Instead, they focus on this idea of working. They were clearly focused on what they needed to do as opposed to what they needed to receive. Right? The way the text is sort of of worded, they, they add this phrase, to be doing the works of God. That is, if you rephrase it a little bit, what does God require for us to do to get this type of food? This is a very works-oriented crowd. Um, one of the commentators that I, that I was reading, he, he mentions that this, this phrase, doing the works of God, like its occurrence suggests that it was asked by those who were bent on gaining precise definitions of legitimate, God-honoring work that would provide the devotee with God's assured affirmation. They wanted to know exactly what they needed to do. And it's not an unreasonable question, but they're missing the mark. And Jesus, Jesus he, he answers their question, which is great. But the answer is, it's comforting, but it's also a bit confusing. So Jesus answers them and says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So he tells us the one thing that we have to do is believe. There's no list of do's and don'ts. There's no orders. There's no directions, no instructions. So in a sense, there's nothing physical for us to do at all. And to, to us and to many in the crowd, this is very difficult to, 
to, to, to wrap our minds around that. We don't have to actually do anything. We just have to believe. And so we have this works-driven culture that, that it, we can't wrap our minds around. We want evidence. We want to we earn what we have, right? But at the same time, there's a lot of comfort in the fact that we don't have to earn this, that there's not a long list of things that we need to do, that there's not all these different works that we have to follow to receive this bread, right? This is very, very good news. And again, so the emphasis on this second interaction, which is something that we struggle with also, is that we have to believe as opposed to work, right? So this belief, this idea of believing, he's refocusing them over and over so far. So we continue, we continue to go. So the people, they hear what he says, and they don't, they're having trouble with it, okay? So verse 30, they said to him, what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Um, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So at this point, when Jesus is answering the questions, he doesn't quote scripture or another teacher. He's teaching with his own authority. And so this, this basically, the crowd asks him, okay, they, they sense this, right? And they ask him, okay, prove it. Prove it. They, they have seen the bread, and they, they feel like the, the miracle of the bread, and they see Jesus kind of teaching like a, uh, with authority, and they, they say, okay, okay, maybe you're, maybe you're like Moses, and we want you to prove that you're like Moses. And so Moses, the story goes with the manna, because they ask, um, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They're, they're asking Jesus to provide some kind of sign similar to the manna. So just a quick synopsis on that. In the, um, in the Exodus, in Exodus 16, Jesus is, I mean, not Jesus, Moses um, is, has, is leading his people through um, the Exodus in Egypt. They're out in the wilderness. They are hungry, they are tired, and they are wondering what's going on. And so they start grumbling and complaining, like to the point to where they say, they say they're thinking with their stomach, right? They say, hey, it would actually have been better for us to be slaves in Egypt than to be out here starving. So God actually hears them. God actually responds, and he provides. Well, in the, in, after this, uh, the quail come up in the evening for the people to eat, and then in the morning, there's this dew, this some kind of substance on plants and on the ground that the people go out and see, but they don't know what it is. They start to call, they say, hey, what is it? What is it? it the scripture says it's some white kind of flaky-like substance, and they're saying, what is it? What is it? Well, what is it is, mimics the Hebrew, fra- Hebrew phrase, manna mimics that. So they just started to call it that. It's basically like us not knowing what to call something, and we just call it that. We call it, I don't know, green. Like it's that type of idea. So it's manna, right? So the one way to interpret this request from the crowd is they want Jesus to be like Moses and provide this manna. They were not impressed, apparently, with the feeding of the 5,000 because Moses gave manna for 40 years, not just one time. Moses fed the entire nation of Israel, not just 5,000 men, right? And Moses gave this bread from heaven. It just wasn't just regular barley loaves, right? So they wanted proof of Jesus' authority. They wanted proof on who Jesus was, right? So Jesus, in his typical fashion, um, he, doesn't, he doesn't provide this sign for them, but he answers this way. In verse 32, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So we see the truly, truly phrase again, and we see this truth bomb. 
So first, Jesus corrects their thinking. They thought that it was Moses was providing those things. He corrects their thinking and said it was God that actually provided those things. They try to use the scripture reference to uh, prove their point, and they use it wrong. So Jesus corrects them, right? Second, they, he states that the manna that was represented in Exodus was not true bread from heaven, with the emphasis on the word true, right? So if we take 32 uh, and 33 and we kind of put them together, we, in the sense we see that true bread from heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, pointing to a person, not food, right? And so it also, he also says, God will provide this true bread from heaven, just like he provided the manna. The crowd wanted Jesus to prove himself like Moses. They wanted him to provide the manna because they were hungry like that he did. But he corrects them and saying, hey, Moses didn't provide that manna. God did. And God is now giving you the true bread from heaven, which gives life to the world. Moving from this past tense, gave manna, to giving the true bread from heaven, which is indication of a present tense. Like, this is now, this is happening right now. So just like, but just like the woman at the well, and just like Nicodemus, the crowd thinks Jesus is, still thinks he's talking in physical terms, and they ask for the, the bread. Sir, give us this bread always. They completely miss the fact that Jesus states, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is going to be more, even more ex- explicit now. So uh, verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Right? So he is very, he, the, don't miss, don't, he's like, don't miss it. You've missed it, you've missed it, you missed it. I am the bread of life. I'm talking about myself. This is the first I am statement in the book of John, and it's pretty, pretty amazing. There's actually seven I am statements throughout, throughout the book of John, right? We have this one here, I am the bread of life. We have I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. So each one of these statements that, that we see throughout the book of John, they highlight a different aspect of who Jesus is. And in this case, he says, I am the bread of life. He's pointing to himself as the source that, uh, for everlasting life. This idea of shall never hunger or shall never thirst. These are spiritual realities of the everlasting life that Christ can provide for us. So Jesus is self-identifying here. If there's any question now, he's self-identifying as the bread of heaven who comes down and gives life to the world. He is our source of everlasting life, right? It's not our works. It's not our family. It's not what we know. It's not our status. It's not our wealth. It's none of these things where we typically look to find our substance, to, to, to fill ourselves up, right? It's none of those things. C.S. Lewis is actually quoted as saying, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough, right? Every great game ends. Every, all good food spoils. All fancy shirts, clothes, all these things, they fade away and they rip and tear. Every car or truck breaks down. Every flower dies. But Jesus, all of these, he mentions that he is, can provide this everlasting life which, which we are always hungering for. He is the one who can fill us up. So in this very simple statement where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, we find the good news of the gospel. In its profound simplicity, we find that we come to Jesus for everlasting life. 
and, and he, he, he elaborates on this even more. So starting in verse 36, but I have said to you that you see me, yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. First, we, we see this idea, we see the contrast between seeing and believing. The crowd wanted to see more. And he's just saying it doesn't matter how much you see, right? It, they're not the same thing. Like, belief is a spiritual reality. It's not a physical reality. Uh, verse 37 then introduced two very important truths for us. Um, I'm not going to go in too deep this morning with these, but I, I do want to touch on them. Uh, these truths. One is the primary role that God plays in our salvation. And two, the assurance that we can have of that salvation in Jesus. The phrase, all that the Father gives me, shows that God is active and primary in our coming to Jesus. We're not naturally bent towards coming to God. In fact, we are enemies of God. We are opposed to, his, we are opposed to God. So, but it's indicated here in John through, and throughout the New Testament, God, does, God pursues us and does not leave us as enemies. But not only are we drawn to Christ divinely by work of God the Father, that we are promised that when we come to Christ, he will not cast us out. He will not reject us. He will accept us. Romans 5 sums it up this way. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is an incredible, incredible truth. And let it resonate in our hearts. It's just, we come to God and he doesn't reject us. Just that alone is just incredible and amazing. Uh, taking a look, at, we'll keep, keep moving through the text. We'll keep moving through the text. So, verse 38. For I, for I, Jesus, have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to the will of him who sent me. And this is the will who's, of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So these three verses are essentially repeating and reinforcing what Jesus already said, but son, come added emphasis in the interaction between the roles of Jesus and God the Father. But Jesus is clearly pointing to himself as the bread from heaven. And the crowd actually gets this. They understand it. So we see in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about this because how can he say, I am the bread that came down from heaven? They said, is this not Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So this is the first, we see the Jews, that, the quote, entering this conversation. And this is a very influential, probably, and religious group that's in this crowd. It may not be the entire crowd, but it is a, a very influential group in the crowd itself. And they turn to their favorite method of identification, a genealogy, right? For those of you that have done the 23Me thing, we look back and we like to know these types of things. The Jews were, were big on these. The Bible is full of genealogies, right? Matthew 1 starts with the genealogy. There's genealogies throughout the Old Testament because it was very important for identification and even some of this idea of like a formative and personal identity. Like how did these people, where did I come from? What tribe of Israel am I, am I from? So, and their logic is, is justified. They basically look and they say, how can he say he came down from heaven? We, we literally know your parents. We literally know where you were born. Like how can you say we come down from heaven? And so, as one of the commentators mentioned, uh, 
as I went through this text, I thought it was a great question. It's like in the phrasing of the text and the way it's presented, you, you have two choices, right? Jesus is the son of Joseph, which is what the knowledge of the people of the day, those religious leaders, that's what they're pointing to. They're saying, hey, look at this. He's just the son of Joseph, or he's the son of God the Father, which is how Jesus identifies himself. So it's a matter of who will you believe? Who will you believe? So Jesus continues to emphasize this exact same claim that he has come down from heaven and he is the bread of life in verses 44 through 51. Um, There's a summary of the truths that we already covered. And so I'm going to in the sake of time, I'm going to skip through those. And, uh, but I would, I would take some time this week. I would encourage you to take some time this week. Look at verse 25 through 40 and compare them to 44 and 51 and just see how they link up and see how they're parallel passages with one another. This, is, this entire text is very Christ-centered. Christ is continually pointing to himself. And it's just a very good news of the gospel-oriented text. And so it's been great to go through it these, these couple of weeks when I've been preparing, and especially those, just linking those, those things up. Um, but one thing we do have to talk about is as we move into the, the, the end of this passage, so verse 51, Jesus says this, and the bread of life that I, I mean, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So up until this point in the discussion, Jesus has used bread of heaven or bread of life in reference to himself as, as this true manna from heaven. And now, he, to further drive home this exact same point, he actually uses the word flesh. Flesh seems um, a bit out of place and it's a bit jarring to us and to them. So at first, we move from this material idea in the, the passage where Jesus continually corrects them. And then, you know, in these previous verses, it seems like the crowd gets that he's talking about himself. And so, okay, okay he's talking about a spiritual reality. He's talking about he came from heaven. But then he flips back and says flesh again. And so their minds immediately go back to the material. And they say in verse 52, the Jews disputed among themselves, how can this man give us our flesh, his flesh to eat? So they're totally confused about what, what's going on because they probably knew, given the length of his teaching, that Jesus was speaking figuratively. And then he jumps back and uses this word flesh, which, which really jars them. Which really jars them. So let's close out the passage and then we'll, we'll work through it a little bit. In verse 53, Jesus said to them, he's answering kind of their question. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread our fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus taught these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So we'll just say it outright. This is, this is confusing, hard to wrap our minds around. Um, Jesus points him to himself as the true bread from heaven, which was likely already blowing the crowd's mind. This is a complete um, new understanding for them. And now, as he continues to teach on this idea, he throws down this idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So, to the Jews then and us now, right, cannibalism is abhorrent and it's unacceptable. Everybody's mouth is just open at this point. They don't understand what he's saying. So let's break it down. Okay. To be sure, 
Okay? Jesus is not talking about someone physically eating his flesh and drinking his blood because no one actually did that. So the passage is not to be taken, taken literally at all. Some, of, some, some folks have also argued that this passage is referring, maybe referring to communion with some emphasis on how believers should maybe view this particular, particular ceremony within the church, right? But there are a few problems with that, right? One is that the word here used for flesh is not the same word that Jesus used when he instituted the Last Supper. There he uses the word soma, which is body. So John would have known the difference between the word. Jesus would have known the difference between the two words. And so that's, that's kind of strong evidence that there's not supposed to be a link between those two things. Second, if we take this por- portion as referring to communion, right, then eating his flesh and drinking his blood are required for eternal life. They're unconditional statements in this passage. And so um, participation, therefore, in communion if we take it that way, would be required for eternal life. But that idea is rejected throughout the New Testament and is rejected not the least in verse 40 here. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Just in contrast to that. So if it's not talking about communion and it's not talking about literally eating, drinking, what is the point he's trying to make? So if we look at verse 54, we see a strong parallel with verse 40, okay? So verse 54 says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And verse 40 says that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and raise him up on the last day. Those, are, those ends of both of those passages are equivalent. So when you put those together, it seems that Jesus is equating this idea of looking to the Son or believing in him with feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. And the linking of those two passages is what caused Augustine to state his famous line when he said, believe and you have eaten. Okay, so not only that, not only that, but the use of the word flesh may point back to John 1 when we first see it used. Okay, in John 1, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14 then says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when you link these two ideas of flesh here, it seems that Jesus may be referring to his death. In that, he once became flesh, verse 14, and is now giving his flesh uh, in sacrifice for the life of the world. And that makes some sense when we see how um, Christ-centered this passage is, and it goes with all this previous teachings, right? So we see that this part of the passage um, uh, is just an extension with maybe some intentional shock value of using that phrase flesh um, by Jesus Um, from what he taught earlier, when he identifies himself as the true bread from heaven, uh, with now this added reference to his death. All right, so we worked through that whole passage, okay? But what does it mean for us now, 2020, in Norman, Oklahoma? What does all this figurative language about bread of life and all eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood, what does that mean? What does that mean for us right now? Well, just like the crowds, right, we come to Jesus and we ask him to do just one more thing so that we can truly trust him, so that we can truly know who he is. We want to see more, right? And just like the crowds, we miss the person of Jesus in favor of what he provides for us 
right? We doubt his ability to sustain us through all circumstances. We continually ask for more. And just like the Jews, we want to rely on our knowledge and our intellect to decide who Jesus is. So just like those crowds, we have to continually remind ourselves through this passage and through um, other scriptures uh, of who Jesus is. I think that feeding on Jesus means that we continually come to him, right? For his, for, so you come to him, for, to, to, to his life, to his death, to his resurrection, um, for our life to be full spiritually, right? We are a consumer-driven culture. We're consumer-driven people just because of where we grew up. But we're continually influenced and shaped by what we consume to the point to where what we consume actually disciples us, right? So we think about it. Twitter tells us that if we follow the right people, we follow the right cause, we follow the right political party, and we have the right people affirming us, we have the right people sharing our post, well, then I will be satisfied. Instagram tells us that if we look a certain way, our bodies look a certain way, well, then, then I'll be satisfied. Country music tells us, this one's for me, personal application, that if you have the right truck and a dog and a farm and you drink enough whiskey, well, then you'll be satisfied. You'll be satisfied. Right? At a car commercial, it'll tell you if you have this awesome, self-driving, battery-powered sedan or car or truck, well, then you'll be satisfied, right? But the list goes on and on. Have the right education, be satisfied. Have the right number of kids in the right school, in the right education, right school, right sports, all those things. Hey, then you'll be satisfied. Have a big enough house, you'll be satisfied. Big enough neighborhood, you'll be satisfied. The list goes on and on and on for us. But what does Jesus tell us? Jesus tells us, I am the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread our fathers ate and died. He's saying, don't eat that bread, right? True everlasting life is found when we consume the true bread that came down from heaven. It's when we consume Jesus. Consuming Jesus means that we continually come to the table and we marvel at the word became flesh and dwelt among us and gave his life for us. We come to the table through spending time in his word. We come to the table through spending time in prayer. We come to the table through spending time in a formative community that's dedicated to learning the ways of Jesus. We have to know that what we consume matters. Consuming Jesus means that we believe who he says he is and that we believe he will do what he said he would do. He tells us, and I will raise him up on the last day. He ends this passage with this amazing truth. Remember, he is the bread of life. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And that is the truth for us. We can't miss Jesus for everything that's going on in our world. We have to... We have to consume more of Jesus. It has to be our primary. We, we can't let the material needs, we can't be driven by our stomachs, right? We can't be driven by the material needs of the world. We have to see that Jesus provides everlasting life, and he is the only one who can do it. And that is the truth, I think, for us this morning, um, that whoever feeds on this bread Whoever feeds on Jesus, whoever consumes Jesus, believes in Jesus, will live forever. And pray with me. Jesus, we're so thankful.
that you came and you didn't leave us without teaching. You didn't leave us to blindly find our way in the world. But you came and you said, I am the bread of life. I can provide everlasting life. It is not up to us. And that is an amazing, amazing truth. We have to remind ourselves all the time. And as this passage continually points, we have to remind ourselves that it is you. Not something that happened in the past. um, Not something to ask for in the future. But you. Now it is you. And we're so thankful for that truth. And we're so thankful that you remind us of that every day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.